This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. So the symptoms can be pain with urination. The biggest symptom is pain with the bladder being full. Um, So when the bladder fills with urine, women experience pain. And actually when they urinate, they have temporary or some relief. But the difference, right, more differences between UTI and bladder pain syndrome is that often for bladder pain syndrome, there's exacerbating factors. So women will know that if they consumed certain foods, they feel those pains more and more. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. In many of the conversations I've had with my friends, I hear, I keep getting recurrent UTIs. What do I do? So today I bring to you expert Dr. Suzanne Fenske, who is a board certified gynecologist and integrative expert. And she talks to us not only about UTIs, but also bladder pain syndrome because some of the symptoms can be similar, but really there is an easy way to differentiate the two. So let's dive in to this discussion to help answer some of these common questions that you have. Dr. Fenske, it's so nice to have you on the FemPower Health podcast today. I've had so many friends over the years that I've been doing this podcast who've been talking about UTIs and such interesting questions. And I'm always struck, like, I don't even have a podcast episode to point you to. Like, we may have discussed one quick thing about this, but not more broadly. And I know that um, through research, interstitial cystitis can also be misdiagnosed and misunderstood. And there's some similar symptoms going on um, between that and UTIs. And I guess now there's a, a new name for interstitial cystitis. My goodness, I could say that um, without the, the, it's like a tongue twister, Um, but now it's called bladder pain syndrome. Uh, So I'm really excited to have you talk to us about this. Again, so many women have these questions and we will address some of the common questions um, that people do tend to have. But of course, we always start with the baseline. But before we dive in, let's get to know you. So tell us about you. So I am founder of Tara MD, which is an integrative gynecology practice in Manhattan. Um, I am OBGYN trained, officially residency, and then went on to do a two-year fellowship in laparoscopic robotic surgery, which is where I really focused in on pelvic pain, endometriosis, chronic pelvic pain, IC, um, and then went on to do a two-year, another two-year fellowship in with Dr. Andrew Weil in integrative medicine and then functional medicine trains to be able to sort of treat things like this, right? And uh, chronic pelvic pain and all other gynecological problems from a more comprehensive approach. So why don't we first start by differentiating between bladder pain syndrome 
and UTIs. And I'm, I'm excited that we can use the term bladder pain syndrome moving forward because interstitial cystitis, I feel like I have to over enunciate to get it correct. <laughs> so I'm going to take advantage of the new lingo here. Um, so yeah, help us understand the difference between the two, just because sometimes there can be a misunderstanding, a misdiagnosis, or even as women, the way we describe it and understand it. And that also probably impacts the treatment and, and what happens after that. So, so help us understand what these two are. Yeah, I'm going to start off with kind of the confusion with the lingo. Um, so the reason that it's now called bladder pain syndrome or painful bladder syndrome is that that kind of refers to a group of disorders. You know, I think that uh, a good way to kind of look at this is that there's lots of etiologies behind it and there's different presentations with it and i'll go further into that but the original case of interstitial cystitis showed these conglomeration of symptoms but on cystoscopy which is where they put a camera into the bladder they saw ulcers which sometimes does happen they're called hunter's lesions and they are seen but not all bladder pain syndrome has those ulcers and it's only usually five to ten percent of it so that's why Really, interstitial cystitis means having the same symptoms, but having those ulcers seen. And bladder pain syndrome refers to all of the same kind of disease presentation without necessarily having those ulcers seen, those hunter lesions seen. Um, so that's kind of the background about why the term has changed. And they really are still kind of used interchangeably often. Um, but if you want to be really technical and definitely for ease of speaking, you can say bladder pain okay. syndrome. Uh, so the difference with UTI and bladder pain syndrome is very, it's very similar in how you have the symptoms. The symptoms are, can be painful urination, increased urinary frequency, feeling like you're not completely empty in your bladder when you go to the bathroom. Um, and that's where it gets kind of confusing. So very often women who suffer from bladder pain syndrome takes years and years to get the diagnosis because they keep getting treated for a UTI or Got urinary tract okay. infection. So they call their doctor and, you know, for ease and care, often doctors are like, okay, let's just treat you for a UTI. It sounds like a UTI and without having that urine culture. The way to really differentiate is that urine culture, right? Because if a urine culture is done and the urine culture doesn't show any bacteria and these symptoms keep persisting and persisting, then you have to think that it's not a urinary tract infection. And whether it's bladder pain syndrome or whether it's the pelvic floor muscles being in spasm, that's the difference. With a urinary tract infection, there's going to be a positive urine culture. Got it. So why is it, if it's so simple to diagnose a UTI, why aren't the cultures taken? Is it often, because I, I don't know the protocol of what tends to happen with the, the patients, and this is where you can come in. Like, I'm assuming it's not, you call the doctor, I think I have a UTI, and get an antibiotic, let's say, because I know that's often what's done. But what is that pathway? Because if it's always a patient going in, once they've tried to probably do some at-home treatments, I should say, um, you know, do they always go into the doctor? And then if that's the case, why are the cultures not being taken? Yeah, I think that, you know, for good good medical care, obviously, is that, yes, yeah, someone calls one time, they have, you know, UTI-like symptoms, it's Friday or it's the weekend, and you're not going to make the patient suffer, you're going to treat her empirically with antibiotics. Hopefully, if the patient doesn't feel better in 48 hours, you're thinking, okay, now we need to do a urine culture, and you have that urine culture done showing that there is no infection. Got it. 
So I think that, that that's where it could go wrong, but hopefully good medicine is that, yes, you may try to make life a little bit easier for the patients, uh, but that if it's not working, you're going to pursue further and get you know the evidence behind what's going on. Now, if you don't mind, let's dive into some questions about UTIs, and then maybe we can get into the interstitial mm-hmm. cystitis and the things that um, we need to better understand. And I did say I was going to say bladder pain syndrome, and there you go. <laughs> I I tried the tongue twister and said it faster than last time. Um, So let's start talking about what causes UTIs. Um, So when we looked at some of the the common causes that people perceive, there's um, one is just people wanted to know what they are, but some um, think maybe it could be dehydration, alcohol, STIs. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about some of the causes? Because that might help with some of the prevention aspects of it. Yeah. So depending on the age of the person, usually if we're talking about more kind of, you know, reproductively aged women, then the main causes are often that there is, you know, there's a microbiome all over us, right? We have a microbiome for our vagina. We have a microbiome for our skin, microbiome for our bowel. Uh, we are just filled with microbiota, right? So there's a different type of microbiome that exists in the colon that doesn't exist in the vagina. And ideally, the vagina is more populated with lactobacillus, which is yeast, and that yeast can protect against infections with bacteria. If the microbiota or the bacteria from, say, what's normally in the colon, which is the most common type of urinary tract infection, somehow manages to get into the urethra and go up into the bladder, then that's going to cause a urinary tract infection. So the most common bacteria is E. coli and E. coli is found in the colon. So for example, things like, yes, what our moms always told us, right? Wiping the wrong way. So wiping from back to front is gonna be able to kind of carry that bacteria from the anus area into the the vagina urethra area. Um, Intercourse, penetrative intercourse can also be another etiology, whether it's with a penis or with a toy, having that go in and out also is gonna carry the bacteria that's normally in the colon into the vaginal area. Got it. So those are the main, and so the dehydration, alcohol, that wouldn't have any factors. Again, these are questions that people tend to have. So, (laughs) okay. No, but it's a great question. I will say that dehydration and alcohol do exacerbate uh, bladder pain syndrome Ah. symptoms. So I I think it's very interesting that someone brought that up and that person, maybe should think about that, but it's not... um, because alcohol is known to right. be an irritant for bladder pain ah. And dehydration, when it's more concentrated urine, can also irritate the bladder. But as for causing UTIs, it does not cause UTIs. So you talked a little bit about the, the prevention, um, which would be avoiding these things that can cause it. Are there other things? Like, for example, um, I've, uh, I remember being told, like, drink cranberry juice and pee after sex, like some of these little tips. So tell us more about, yeah. um, about the, the preventative aspects of it and some of these myths, maybe facts that, that we've heard. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so urinating after sex is, again, trying to flush out that bacteria that's gone into the urethra. Um, the bladder itself is supposed to be an area where no bacteria is, actually. It's, a, it's called a sterile environment. 
so when you have that bacteria going in there, it's, it's foreign, it's perceived foreign. So urinating right after intercourse could flush out some bacteria. And that's why we're told that it's actually not a myth. It can be that's really great. helpful. Cranberry juice is an interesting one. It's actually not the cranberry juice. It's actually, there's, um, there's something in it called D-mannose and D-mannose is a monosaccharide that actually is from uh, a type of tree, a large tree. Um, and what it does, D-mannose, and it can be used actually if you're someone who has a lot of urinary tract infections for prevention of it, although the data is a little bit mixed, but D-mannose actually binds up E. coli and doesn't allow E. coli to bind to the bladder wall. And that's how it works. So it's not actually the cranberry juice itself. If you're someone who doesn't like cranberry juice, you can get D-mannose capsules as a supplement and take that instead. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask this question because I hear many um, things um, being suggested to put in the vagina to work more effectively. And so because I know that that seems to be um, something that happens a lot, I figured I would ask, since the D-manos is a capsule, what like, um, what's your yay or nay on if someone's like, well, let me just put it in my vagina, it'll work faster. <laughs> so, you know, oftentimes you can put things in the vagina that will be helpful. Um, and I would say, I'll come back to it, but if you have recurrent UTIs and you're somebody who's more menopausal, then putting some estrogen in your vagina can be very helpful for preventing UTIs. For D-manos, if you're going to have the capsules, you need to take it orally in order for it to work. Okay. So tell me about UTIs and menopause then. So are they more frequent because things are changing down there with our hormone changes? And what do we need to be cognizant of as we age? Yes. So it is much more common to get UTIs in the menopausal. It's funny, actually. Um, it's very common to get UTIs in that menopausal time period. And it's very common to get UTIs in your 20s, right? So it's, a, it's kind of on other ends of the extreme. But estrogen is incredibly protective. Estrogen has many benefits to the vaginal tissue. It makes the vaginal tissue um, obviously more lubricated, thicker. The cells are actually thicker as well with it. And estrogen in general has some anti-inflammatory properties. So it is protective. And with menopause, obviously, there's a lack of estrogen. And very often you'll see it in, in the vagina, whether it manifests as pain with intercourse or just general dryness um, or persistent or recurrent UTIs. It's very common to see it that way. And sometimes the best way to sort of do preventative treatment is some vaginal estrogen cream. Interesting. Okay. I love that. When it comes to the treatments, you know, I, I know some of the things that we've been discussing on the podcast is sometimes antibiotics are prescribed too frequently and too quickly. Mm -hmm. And so let's say, you know, we've mm -hmm. tried these preventative measures or we haven't, and we have the UTI anyways. Um, what is your perspective on antibiotics? And as someone who has the functional medicine training, I guess maybe a better question is, um, how do we look at, at treatment? Yes. So unfortunately, I, I do really believe in judicious use of antibiotics. So I usually uh, will always get a urine culture on patients and usually will choose if they do have a UTI, you know, you do a urine culture, you can actually get sensitivity panels. What that means is that they will actually look at the most common organisms and differentiate out which specific organism your, is your urinary tract infection and which antibiotics it's sensitive to. They actually tested it in a lab. 
So I always do kind of an advanced urine culture in which I look at sensitivity panels too, so that I know exactly that I give you this antibiotic, this antibiotic will work for you, and I'm not going to put you through one pill and then another pill to finally cure it. Uh, so I think that, you know, ultimately, as I mentioned, I'm integrative, right? So I believe in treating a urinary tract infection because if left untreated, obviously, there's significant sequelae. So you can have kidney infections, um, you know, which is called pyelonephritis. It's, it can be very serious things that can happen. But I think it's really important to know exactly what you're treating. And this is also important for women as they, if they have recurrent UTIs to know if it's the same organism over and over again that's giving them that UTI or whether it's different organisms. Interesting. So when you're talking about this, the sensitivity panel, is that automatically something that comes with the culture? Or is that an additional request or is it something that comes with it, but doctors may not always look at and we need to ask to make sure, like, how does all that? So it's not actually, it's, it does not necessarily always come. You can order as a physician or, or a provider, you can order a urine culture that is a comprehensive urine culture, or you can order a urine culture that's a routine urine culture. And if you order a comprehensive panel, which may take a little bit more time, they are actually going to plate the bacteria and see what the bacteria is sensitive to. Okay, so let's play this okay. out. So I, as a woman, go into my doctor and I have this, what we think is a UTI and it takes time. So what I'm hearing you say is it could be certain um, information that you may get from the sensitivity panel that impacts the type of antibiotic, but typically the protocol is potentially call the doctor on a Friday afternoon and what if they prescribe the wrong antibiotic? So what if the woman is listening to you and saying, I want the right thing mm -hmm. so I don't have to keep coming back in or I'm very nervous about antibiotics. I want the exact right one. What do we do? Suffer, we say suffer and wait. How much longer does it take to get the sensitivity panel? So, yeah, I mean, I think that it, ultimately, right, you don't want anyone to suffer. So if it is a Friday and this is somebody who does not, who's not being routinely calling, who doesn't have recurrent UTIs, doesn't have frequent UTIs, um, but, you know, happens to call Friday saying, oh my gosh, you know, it's, I can't, I can't deal with this. It's so incredibly painful to urinate. We're going into set the weekend. Um, then you, as a, as a provider, it's, you know, good care to care for the patient and to give an antibiotic and say, if in 48 hours, you're not feeling better, then you need to get a urine culture. So we know exactly what we're treating alternatively, right? If it's during the week, ideally you really do want to do a urine culture. Now you could start if someone's really uncomfortable you could start with um an antibiotic that is has knowing the data has the most sensitivity to most bacteria and the least resistance right for example there used to be an antibiotic that was incredibly prescribed over prescribed right cipro or ciprofloxacin for utis and now there's a lot of resistance surprise surprise to ciprofloxacin yep. So ideally, you want to pick an antibiotic that's going to cover most of the organisms. And if someone's really uncomfortable, you may start them on that and wait for the urine culture to come back as you've already drawn the urine culture. And the urine culture may take, you know, a day or two, which is not ridiculous. And if you have to switch, you switch at that point. Some have talked about a Tylenol and ibuprofen. I guess one where do those help and do they, and does it matter if you take ibuprofen or Tylenol? So Tylenol generally is good for uh, fevers, right? So if you have a fever, a Tylenol is okay. a better medication. Yeah. Ibuprofen is better for pain and for inflammation, okay. right? It's, it's an anti-inflammatory. 
So um, in general, if you're someone who's not having fevers, which you really shouldn't be too much with UTIs, that's more of a concern with when it progresses to kidney infection, then, then ibuprofen's a better option for it. And it's fine to take it. It doesn't interact with anything else. Wow. So it's really great to hear that, you know, an integrative medicine doctor is saying, here's what we do. We got to do these antibiotics. And it sounds like we want to get the right one if we can really test for that. Um, so it sounds like we as a woman to be proactive, if we do have this, ask our doctor to do the sensitivity panel. Just a quick question. Do you find that insurance yes. covers it? Yes. Sometimes, never, always. 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 I've never had an issue. Really? Yes. <gasps> okay. A couple of missing facts, and then I want to get into um, bladder pain syndrome. So can you flush out a UTI with water? No, that's a myth, actually. Okay. Um, We talked about cranberry Mm -hmm. juice and peeing after sex. Can sitting too much have an impact? It shouldn't, no. What about um, sexually transmitted? Absolutely. I mean, one of the most common symptoms that women have for some of the sexually transmitted infections like chlamydia or gonorrhea is, is burning with urination. So, yeah. Okay. And then um, some have asked, can I receive oral sex if I have a UTI? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. I love this. Like quick yes. And I need to do this more often on the podcast. I usually don't, but this is really fun. Okay. Can a UTI affect my mental health? It's an interesting question, actually. That is an interesting question. So I will say this. No, UTI directly will not affect mental health. Um, I will say that um, if you're someone who has recurrent UTIs, persistent UTIs, or bladder pain syndrome, it can lead to some depression. Having any sort of chronic illness can lead to depression. Now, I feel like this is a good transition here because I remember being at dinner with a bunch of women and and one was saying, you know, I have constant um, UTIs. But I think, tell us about these recurrent UTIs and potential impact and the importance of getting things taken care of. Yeah. So the well, let's start off with definition, the definition of a recurrent urinary tract infection, because this is a common question that I get from women. And the definition is two or more urinary tract infections in six months or three or more in one year. So by that definition, if you have it, you, you're able to kind of ascertain if you have, if you're someone who has recurrent UTIs or not. With recurrent UTIs, the impact is that, you know, currently the therapy that's used most by physicians is, is preventative or prophylactic antibiotics. So having to take a pill every single day or take a pill around intercourse. Um, and it can lead a lot to, you know, women being very scared and obviously being on a chronic antibiotic use, you know, from the more integrative and functional sides of things does affect the microbiome. So we do want to be aware of that and potentially it's not the best option to be on an antibiotic all the time to prevent an infection from happening and affecting the microbiome. If you're someone who's younger and you've, okay. and you've had urinary tract infections kind of persistently, right? Even going back to childhood, um, the woman's urethra is much shorter than a man's urethra, right? So there's more of an opportunity from the bacteria, like I had mentioned, to get up through the urethra and into the bladder. There are some women who have, you know, an even shortened urethra. And so if you're having recurrent UTIs at the younger age, say for teens, for example, then you do want to evaluate whether there's another etiology, whether it's anatomical and the length of the urethra, or whether there's something called reflux that happens 
where the urine actually kind of goes backwards a little bit, and that increases the risk of UTIs. When you're older and this starts to happen, for example, you know, mid-20s and on, then, then it's usually a different etiology. And by not treating recurrent urinary tract infections, like I mentioned, you're at risk for, for kidney infections to be a bigger issue too. It also is incredibly painful. I'm sure most of us have had a UTI at some point in our life, incredibly painful and can really affect quality of life, work, personal life. So it, it should be addressed and it should be treated. And as I had mentioned, you know, if you're someone who has recurrent UTIs, you have two or more in six months and or three or more in one year. Now, what about if you do have that really short urethra? What happens if that's what's causing the UTI? Do you have to get like surgery to get that fixed? Like, what does that mean? No, not usually. I mean, unfortunately, at least you know the the reason why. Um, but you're going to go back to the same sort of modalities that anyone else would do who has recurrent urinary tract infections. Got it. Okay. Which is the, you're talking about more the prevention and like being really diligent about the preventative aspects of it. Is that what you mean? Yes. The preventative aspects okay. or the antibiotic use prophylactically or the D-manos that we had discussed. Okay. Got it. Um, Cause I guess I was more just thinking about if it's the antibiotic route, just again, not taking them too often. So, um, okay, perfect. So now let's get into bladder pain syndrome. Um, and you know, I don't know if there's a path from, I'm a woman who has been on this, we think it's a UTI path. Um, are there a, a lot of cases where it's being misdiagnosed, the bladder pain syndrome for a really long time because that culture wasn't taken? And I guess, should we, I just want to know how prevalent that can be because that culture seems like black and white an answer, but I just don't know how often there's this massive delay because of the lack of the culture. Yeah, often what happens in the delay is, you know, hopefully there's not a long delay in regards to the culture. Hopefully the physician picks up on it and does a culture. For women who suffer from chronic pelvic pain for other reasons, often there's a delay in that concomitant diagnosis of bladder pain syndrome because they Got attribute it. that pain they're having to one of the other causes. For example, endometriosis, right, is one is one that often there's kind of um, this partnering of endometriosis and bladder pain syndrome, which, which actually makes some sense when we go into kind of the pathophysiology of bladder pain syndrome, but there's also a partnering. So what happens is those women will kind of blame a lot of their symptomatology on their endometriosis and not know that they have a secondary diagnosis as well. There's also, you know, another pelvic pain um, disease that's called, you know, pelvic floor muscle, either hypertonicity or myalgia, when the pelvic floor muscles are either, you know, kind of super tight, you know, how some people kind of tense their shoulders when they're stressed, or um, they carry pain in their back when they're stressed. There is, there are women who tense their pelvic floor muscles when they're stressed. And with doing that constantly, I always give the analogy, you know, if you make, if you, if you curl your bicep and you walk around all day long with your doing a bicep curl, then that muscle, that bicep is going to hurt a lot at the end of the day. And that's what happens for that. Again, very similar symptoms to painful bladder syndrome. And so that's why often that there's a delay in having that diagnosis. If you have bladder pain syndrome, is one of the symptoms always pain with urination? 
No. So the symptoms can be pain with urination. The biggest symptom is pain with the bladder being full. Um, so when the bladder fills with urine, women experience pain. And actually when they urinate, they have temporary or some relief. But the difference, right, more differences between UTI and bladder pain syndrome is that often for bladder pain syndrome, there's exacerbating factors. So women will know that if they consumed certain foods, they feel those pains more and more. So, for example, because it's funny, you had mentioned, right, alcohol, caffeine, um, citrus or citric foods. So like tomatoes, citrus fruit, unfortunately, chocolate. Um, carbonated beverages, all of these things actually can exacerbate symptoms of bladder pain syndrome. And that's different because for a urinary tract infection, what you're consuming is not going to make your symptoms worse. Would never have thought that mm -hmm. it could be a trigger in this kind of a situation. Interesting. There is definitely a bladder pain syndrome diet. Definitely. <laughs> really? You're oh, kidding. Yes. Is it, so I'm just curious, is it, um, is it one of those where there's foods that tend to impact it and then you figure out which ones impact you? Or is it fairly consistent if you have this, these are the foods you everyone should avoid? I'm so curious. So usually, unfortunately, it's an elimination and you usually eliminate all of the foods that are the worst for you. And then a lot of my patients will kind of gradually introduce back one at a time, you know, for a few days, kind of like an elimination diet, right? So you do at least three weeks of all of that list of food out of your diet. And then after the three weeks, you're going to introduce one food and do that same food every single day for a couple of days and then see if your symptoms come back again. That's if, you know, you want to be able to have some of these foods back in your diet and not have such a limited diet, but absolutely. So can bladder pain syndrome be cured? And what do you have to do to like, because what I'm hearing is there are these food triggers that, and I don't, so I don't know like exactly where comes from and what causes it? And then mm -hmm. how do you treat it as well? So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, let's start off. So unfortunately, like so many things in medicine, we don't really know where it comes from and why it happens to certain women. Um, and most commonly it happens in thirties and on. And I have women in their seventies who all of a sudden have a new diagnosis of this, but thirties and on is when it happens the most. Um, it impacts men too, but of course, it impacts women significantly more often. And we're not quite certain what the what the reasoning is, why some women have it. There is a theory that there's kind of this breakdown in this gag layer. And the gag layer is this layer inside your bladder that protects your bladder. And when you have this breakdown in that gag layer, then urine kind of seeps into the wall of the bladder and is an irritant. So that's kind of the working theory behind what happens. Now, why that breakdown happens, we don't know, right? We don't know whether there was an inciting event. Like some people will say to me, you know, I really associate my diagnosis starting when I had a really bad urinary tract infection that I didn't treat immediately. So we don't know if there's some sort of trigger event that happens and then this is subsequent to that, but that's sort of what happens with it. And that actually creates this inflamed environment in the bladder. So it's a matter of having that breakdown in the, in the barrier, in the bladder, and then having this chronic inflammation happen too. So I'm curious, cause I, I actually do have um, endometriosis and I'm pretty um, tied into the community there. Tell me about this endometriosis and bladder pain syndrome. Is there any official 
linkages between the two. Um, tell me more about, about that. Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of studies that have shown a link between endometriosis and irritable bowel syndrome, as well as endometriosis and painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome. The terms are used interchangeably. Um, and, you know, as you know, because you, you've, you've suffered from endometriosis, similar etiology that there is something plus inflammation, which causes the pain and the issues, right? So for endometriosis, it's a disease of estrogen and inflammation. For bladder pain syndrome, it's a disease of a breakdown in that gag layer and inflammation, right? So recurrently, we keep seeing with this, the inflammation and the inflammation is what really causes the pain that we see. So given our world has been changing with like more toxins in our food and things like that, I mean, I know we're all learning about this and starting to be more proactive, but there's much to be understood. I'm so curious, um, have the incidences of, of bladder pain syndrome increased? And could it be because of the toxins and the world changing and many other things, which I think could be a whole other episode, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, are you seeing incidences rise? Uh, yes, incidences are rising. I think that also the right name is being given to the disease. So I'm not sure if it's a matter of the actual numbers of cases going up or whether it, the diagnosis is getting better when we, the physicians are able to actually see the symptoms, put it together, get the right diagnosis attached to it. So it's, it's difficult, but you know, what, what we all know is that what we put in our body and exposed to our, in our, our body, um, is a huge problem, especially in our country with, you know, our diet, with our standard American diet. Admittedly, like this, this is an episode about UTIs and versus bladder pain syndrome, but I, I don't want this to be, again, especially since you said not all of those with bladder pain syndrome have pain with urination, which is mm -hmm. often what uh, we have with UTI. So I don't want people to assume now we've covered everything with bladder pain syndrome. So uh, from a, a symptom perspective and the confusion around proper diagnosis, are there things in there for those listening who may ha have someone they know or just wanted to know more about this, I guess you could say second half of the episode? What are some of the misperceptions there? Because I see a lot of people on social media talking about the misdiagnosis. Yeah. So usually it's not, you know, for UTIs, it's pain with urination, burning pain with urination. What they both have is lower pelvic pain in general. And with both of them, UTIs and, and uh, bladder pain syndrome, the more the bladder fills, the more pain you have as well. But really specifically, for most women who come to me and have bladder pain syndrome, the pain is, is persistent, it's chronic, it's all the time. And it's less so with urination, actually, and they actually get reprieve right after urination. Now, UTI, if you've had a UTI, you know this, there's no reprieve after urination. It actually makes the pain worse when you urinate, and that's what you feel afterwards. So really, if you're trying to kind of differentiate between the two of them, then that pain with urination usually leans more towards a UTI and that pain um, leading up to urination is really bladder pain syndrome. If a woman experiences improvement in pain after she urinates, that's really common with bladder pain syndrome. Both of them, both of them can have some blood in the urine, right? More so with a urinary tract infection. But if a woman does have those Hunter lesions that I had mentioned, those ulcers in the bladder wall, then those can cause some bleeding and there can be some blood. 
But as I mentioned, hunter lesions are only about five to 10% of women who have it. Okay. And, and I, I love that, um, you said it in this way, because one of the things that I talk so much about on social media and even on the podcast is asking questions of your doctor, but also we are, um, we know our body better than our doctor. The doctor mm-hmm. knows the science. And a lot of doctors are also saying, um, that we, we want women to tell us what's going on, but I think sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Like I would never think to tell my doctor, well, when I urinate, um, I feel better. And in this case, this is what happens. Like, because you don't always know with every condition, unless you already have thoroughly researched it and know exactly how to monitor your body, there may be things you forget to say, which could really help the doctor. And so it's kind of a, it's an important nuance that you shared, but what about just general misdiagnosis of bladder pain syndrome? Um, Cause again, social media, people seem to be talking about it a lot. So I don't know if it's just, there's a lot of noise or are you seeing, hearing it commonly being um, misdiagnosed when a woman comes in, let's say with pelvic pain? I think it's often misdiagnosed. Yes. With pelvic pain. Um, pelvic pain is so complex. It's often hard to tell where the pain is coming from. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult to differentiate what the pain is. There's a lot of organs down there, right? We have the colon down there. We have our bowel down there, bladder, rectum, um, uterus, all sitting in the same area. So it's kind of hard to differentiate when that pain exists, whether that pain is coming from what organ it's coming from. Uh, so it is often misdiagnosed. And then there's often the perception that if you have one right cause of it, you're not going to have the other. And then even a lot of women who have painful bladder syndrome, often as a result of the chronic pain that they're experiencing, will then get the pelvic floor muscle myalgia and or tenderness and dysfunction. And so that will become the diagnosis that they have when really you're going to have to treat both of those causes because one's not going to get better without the other one getting better. Interesting. So again, a reiteration for why it's important to be proactive. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Um, awesome. So for any of these two, because I want to talk about um, TerraMD so people will um, have a better idea of what you're um, doing with that and your future plans. Um, anything else that we should be aware of when it comes to U- UTIs and, and bladder pain syndrome or any messages you would like for women to take away around those two? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important from a bladder pain syndrome perspective to approach this from a comprehensive approach, right? So you really want to approach it maybe perhaps by trying to rebuild that bladder wall, and that's usually with medications. Um, Obviously you wanna calm the pain too, and sometimes you you get this central sensitization syndrome, which means that when you're somebody who has pain and chronic pain, then what happens is that your mind kind of associates the pain and becomes overstimulated And then there's much worse pain. And that central sensitization actually comes from the brain and the nerves that chronically, chronically perceive that pain. So if you're someone who has bladder pain syndrome, you're going to want to approach it by by trying to heal the bladder, by trying to calm the pain down, right, which might be medications on both ways. And then also look again at that diet and exacerbating food and keep that log to see what works, what really exacerbates for you and what doesn't. And then approach it from another side, right? Look at stress management because things like stress can make it a lot worse, can make symptoms a lot worse. And also look at the inflammation aspect and consider maybe some of those common supplements that we use to kind of bring down inflammation. Is the type of doctor, so can an OBGYN, you know, 
does do they have all the training to be able to treat this um or does someone need to go to a specialist usually does you, it depend well, well, it does depend actually so um there are some OBGYNs who go on and do additional training or, or fellowship in urogynecology okay and they become urogynecologists and if you're going to go to an OBGYN you're going to want to either go to a pelvic pain specialist OBGYN or you're going to want to go to a urogynecologist your general say for example the the wonderful doctor who delivered your baby may not be able to really treat this in general. Alternatively, you can go to a urologist, a female mm-hmm. urologist, but those are usually the specialists you're going to see. One of those three. Okay. Thank you. So my takeaway here is, you know, there are some proactive measures when it comes to UTIs, but we want to make sure that we're proactive about it and get that culture and the sensitivity test so that we get the right strain of probiotic. Um, and there are lots of preventative measures and with bladder pain syndrome or any of this stuff, we need to monitor what is happening with our bodies when we feel the pain, when the pain is relieved so that we can explain to our doctor to really start with the right treatment and get us on the right track. But the Mm -hmm. UTI very clearly the culture. Mm -hmm. Did I, did I get an A? Perfect. (laughs) Yay. Um, Thank you so much. Cause again, like so many friends have been talking about this and I know this is like a really specific topic that we're diving into, but I always like to, to help um, those who I connect with and I'm like, I don't have all the answers. So I appreciate you um, giving us the, the 101 here. Um, So tell us about Tara MD. I mean, there's been such great evolutions in um, women's health and um, I know by the time this episode goes live, it'll have been um, a little bit of time that has passed, but I still want to acknowledge Maven Clinic, for example, just raised $90 million. They're already at a billion dollar valuation. So women's health, finally, we're seeing, and there's so much that still needs to be done. So even though we see that, this is just um, you know, some of what we need to do. So tell me more about uh, Terra MD and, and what you're focused on and your plans for the near future. Yeah. So, I mean, I completely agree. I think that, that everyone sort of had a wake up call in medicine. Um, I had an academic practice beforehand. Uh, I was not in private practice at all. And, um, and I loved academic medicine, but just felt that there was sort of this small amount of time that I was sending with patients. Um, I was doing a lot of surgeries and, um, really saw that women need a really comprehensive approach to everything. And I just wanted more time to be able to do that and more skills and knowledge to be able to do it. So that's where Tara MD was born. Um, I founded it a little over a year ago. We opened, we opened September, 2021 actually. And the goal was to have a practice where you're uh, an integrative gynecologist. So you have good training, excellent training in traditional and you utilize that in evidence-based medicine all the way around. So evidence-based traditional modalities, evidence-based more integrative modalities too. And with the functional aspect, we do some additional testing sometimes, especially for you know hormone evaluation and um, gut microbiome evaluation for women that have that. The other plan was to kind of have multiple things under one roof. So have acupuncture services, health coach services, nutrition services, because Again, this goes back to really approaching a problem from all angles and also allowing a woman to choose how she feels comfortable treating what's going on in her body. So we've been open for a little over a year. My goal is to, you know, uh, expand, hire more, bring on more specialists. I am um, bringing on now a sex coach, which is fantastic and I love. 
we do all of gynecological care because I do think that in general, you know, when, when you're pregnant, you get a lot of attention, a lot of care. Um, and then otherwise in a woman's life, there's very little attention that goes <laughs> into what's going on. So the goal was to really focus in, I do gynecology only, there's no obstetrical care in my practice to be able to really give women that care and that, and that focus. So with that, the goal is to add on some additional services. Um, I do focus a lot in general gynecological care, but extra focuses and extra training. I'm North American Menopause Society certified provider. So I do a lot of perimenopause and menopause. Um, and I do a lot of abnormal hormones like polycystic ovarian syndrome. And then the pelvic pain modalities too. So endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. Okay. Wow. Interesting. And is it a physical space or are you also doing telehealth? Both. Yes, both. We're both. Yep. Yeah. So given that, because um, I, I, I probably should know this and I, I, I will admit that I, I haven't monitored enough to confidently speak about it, but I do know there's like all the different state you can't always cross the state borders. I know things have been back and forth with COVID and mm -hmm. it seems like it's by specialty, by the way. Um, so given, I think you're in New York, right? So can it only be state of New York that can work with you at the moment for any of the telehealth pieces? Or is there something with, based on some of the nuances of the rules that um, are going on and some of the constant <laughs> evolutions, um, can people call from other states as well to oh, do the telehealth? So unfortunately for a while with telehealth during COVID, you know, anyone can see anybody. Um, but now we've gone back to sort of, you know, pre-COVID rules. Uh, I am getting licensed in Connecticut and New Jersey currently, so that should be up and running in just a month or so. And then I'll be able to obviously take care of telehealth uh, for Connecticut and New Jersey too. Um, but other than that, you know, if you're, if you'd have to come physically into the space. Well, it's great to see, because I know that uh, just after, you know, many seasons now of interviewing experts of so many different disciplines, I mean, it just it's it's so needed to have things under one roof and it's great to see that um that you're putting that effort in place and i also like that it's a um multidisciplinary mm -hmm. approach um meaning also looking at it from the uh traditional um medicine but also the functional medicine so really integrative so thank you so much for for all that and for educating us on this really important topic of both bladder pain syndrome and UTI. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for having me.